worry about Internet of Things is there are national security implications. That yeah. is not the same as like regular product safety. It, it, it does have implications outside of you and your home and the thing you bought. So there might be a point where we have to step in as a country and say, right, these insecure home routers could affect the power grid, could affect our elections, could affect big things. And there you're going to have to have someone to enforce standards that are, you know, maybe higher than even the consumer wants, but are necessary for the nation. Welcome to episode 324 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views that we're expressing here today would be found shocking by our clients, our institutions, uh, our friends, our families, and our pets, uh, uh, and they disavow them in advance. Uh, uh, today, our interview is going to be with Bruce Schneier, who's an internationally recognized security technologist, lecturer, author. I uh, uh, he's been on the show uh, several times before. His most recent book is Click Here to Kill Everybody, but we're going to be talking to him about uh, Internet of Things security. Uh, first, though, we're going to do the news roundup, and uh, uh, we've got um, two familiar voices and one new voice. Uh, the new voice is Megan Stiefel, who founded Silicon Harbor Consultants and was a cybersecurity official at the National Security Council. Uh, Megan, welcome. Thanks, Stuart. Happy to join everyone. Good to have you. And uh, uh, then the two co-founders of Culper Partners uh, uh, and also former government officials, Nate Jones, formerly with the National Security Council, and David Chris, formerly in charge of the National Security Division at the Justice Department. Welcome to both of you. Thanks a lot, Stuart. Okay, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the National Security Agency and the Department of Homeland Security and the host and chief provocateur of today's program. Um, so I, I think we ought to start out with TikTok, which made a whole bunch of news, most of which it probably didn't really want to make uh, this, uh, um, this week. Um, the the Probably the, the news that's gotten the most interest uh, on LinkedIn and when I've tweeted about it is this notion that the government is going to ban TikTok. Uh, um, there was a story in which uh, Secretary Pompeo said, yeah, we're looking at it. Uh, and uh, other folks, I think Peter Navarro has made similar noises. And the question that uh, arises uh, is, uh, uh, how would the government do that? So why don't we, why don't we jump into that? Uh, uh, Nate, you want to start us off? I, I think I was going to defer to Megan on that one. And here I thought it was right? going to go the other way around. <laughs> All right. So let me then I'll jump in. I I don't think this is hard, uh, although it's early days. Uh, the president signed an executive order, uh, 13873. And I'm guessing we're going to have to learn that number because it's going to get used a lot, uh, uh, which essentially says that the Commerce Department is going to set up a process for identifying adversary nations who are supplying telecommunications technology to the United States and whose technology poses an unacceptable unacceptable risk to the United States uh, uh, security and safety. Um, and essentially, it allows the president, or the uh, uh, yeah, it allows the 
president working through the commerce secretary to invoke the International Economic Emergency Powers Act, uh, IEPA. Uh, and that is the act under which almost all U.S. sanctions have been adopted. And those sanctions essentially say, if you take a nickel from this person, if you give a nickel to this person, uh, you're in violation of the law. Um, and if you said that about TikTok, you know, uh, no one in the United States, no U.S. person anywhere in the world may give anything of value to TikTok. Uh, that pretty much knocks them out of the U.S. market. I think that's largely right, Stuart. I guess, you know, one of the open questions in this context that I don't think has really come up under AIPA is whether use of a free service and posting information on it is giving them something of value. Arguably, it does give them something of value because they're earning advertising money and other things off of that content. Um, but it, it, it's at least one open question that, that I think you may see TikTok uh, attack in this kind of approach if it goes forward. But so, yeah, TikTok, yeah, I, I, I agree. You could there, there are theoretical possibilities that uh, people could leave TikTok at the TikTok app on their phone and continue to use it for uh, without uh, um, spending any money. Um, a, and I, I, I think that doesn't really address the, the, the way in which this would really work. Uh, um, you can't run ads on TikTok if you're a, uh, a, a, a U.S. company uh, because you'd be paying them um, a, and you can't uh, um, support TikTok app uh, the TikTok app through the Apple Store or the Android Store, um, so I, it just it, it it seems to me it becomes almost impossible um, uh, to run a free service because the free service runs on somebody else paying for it, and those people can't pay for it. Yeah, certainly people who are within the reach of of the U.S. sanctions laws. There may be people who obviously go ahead and do that anyway in other parts of the world, but. Sure. Uh, and I, my assumption is that uh, the, they will write the, uh, the rule that says you can't do this if it's for a service to be provided in the United States. Uh, otherwise, they'd be putting them out of business globally uh, or at least uh, in many countries. And I'm not sure they are intending to do that. The, the only fly in the ointment that I see is I don't think commerce has actually finalized the rules for doing this. They they put out a, a proposed rule a year ago, I think, uh, uh, and it's never mm-hmm. been finalized. But uh, my guess is they could do that pretty quickly, although there's all this, you know, the requirement that you uh, elaborately re- explain your response to the comments you get sometimes slows these things down uh, inordinately but my guess is they could uh, they could put something out pretty fast uh, if they uh, if the president wanted them to so the other thing the other shoe that's coming up is um, the US has a uh, uh, under the National Defense Authorization Act uh, uh, there was a ban on a variety of Chinese technology didn't didn't include TikTok but it did include Hikvision uh, ZTE Huawei a variety of others um, and it did two things. One, it said, don't sell us any of that stuff. Uh, we're the U.S. government, and we don't want that stuff in our uh, network. Um, and that rule's more or less in place. 
the other thing it said is don't sell us services if you're using these tools, which is a much bigger deal. Uh, and I think what they were getting at is um, telecommunications providers who might try to sell telecommunications that ran through a network that had Chinese um, equipment on it. Uh, but taken at face value, it could say if you have bought or are using uh, a Hikvision uh, video cameras, uh, then you are barred from selling products to the United States government, which could turn out to be a very big deal and, and drive a lot of uh, um, uh, sales or at least uh, kill a lot of sales. Uh, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of talk about that uh, finally coming out sometime in the next few weeks, but we haven't seen it. Uh, but it's definitely worth watching for because it's a much bigger deal than, than I think most people expected. And reports are, Stuart, that they're going to have a waiver process, and um, that may get used extensively um, for the kinds of examples you're talking about, where they're using temperature checks for employees coming into the buildings or or merely using cameras for, for physical security at their, their locations. Yeah. So the other more bad news for TikTok, the Federal Trade Commission and the Justice Department are looking into the uh, possibility that they uh, failed to live up to their consent decree in 2019 about protecting children's privacy. I, I, I think uh, um, the the most interesting news there is that the Justice Department is also looking into those allegations. That it's not usually how uh, FTC consent decrees are enforced. So um, this may indicate a determination to turn what would otherwise be a, a routine enforcement action into something more. Yes, yeah, Stuart, it, it does seem like there is more to this story that we, we should expect to see in the coming weeks. And I think it will tie into some of the other developments around taking action against China that we're going to talk about in a few few minutes here. But um, yes, the consent decree they appeared to have reason to believe was not followed. And so the data around these two kids under 13 that was collected without parental consent, which is a requirement under the federal statute governing uh, with the protection of children online. Um, and they have reason to believe that the data was not deleted in inconsistently with the consent decree that was signed last year. So um, another potential wake-up call for those collecting data on children, among other things. Somebody yeah, and if you'll... The class action go goes forward, uh, as I've got uh, at least one child who might be a plaintiff member of that class. <laughs> yes, and that's I'm probably right. Damages. <laughs> I think we have a ban on TikTok in our house. So, um. <laughs> You're ahead of Amazon, I guess. <laughs> Uh, apparently ahead of Amazon for, for some time. Amazon announced that it was banning uh, TikTok from people's uh, uh, work phones uh, and then almost immediately said, oh, no, never mind. That was a mistake. Mm -hmm. um, it, it turns out that TikTok is a place where a lot of ads run and 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 referrals for certain kinds of products not surprisingly you know uh, uh pimple medicine i'm sure is one of them uh, it, it, it can be pretty substantial and so there's some speculation that uh, amazon discovered when tiktok called them and said uh, uh, are you sure you want to do that because um, uh, you don't really want to make us mad and they decided that, that it had been a mistake uh, uh, so it may 
it's one of those mistakes where the security guy did, wouldn't have said it was a mistake, but the uh, business guys thought it was a mistake. Uh, and and one piece of evidence that that's the case is that Wells Fargo has come out and said, uh, no, really, take if, if you work for us, take it off your phone now. Uh, so CISOs are getting nervous about TikTok for, for some good reasons. We, we covered uh, last week the uh, um, extent to which they've been scar- it, uh, TikTok has been scarfing up data, uh, and it's pretty substantial, more than average uh, for sure. Um, so uh, the, uh, we're probably going to see more private sector uh, announcements. I am going to ask you guys uh, if you'll let me ride my hobby horse just for a minute about the FTC. Why are we if if TikTok is a potential national security concern, why are we asking a bunch of consumer protection and antitrust commissioners to decide what to do about it? I, it just strikes me as weird that cybersecurity is kind of by default or by aggressive turf building on the part of the FTC, turning into an issue that the FTC is claiming primacy in when the biggest worry is national security. Yeah, well, just because it's a uh, national security threat potentially doesn't mean it isn't also a consumer threat. So, you know, you've got the FTC out there loud and proud. You don't know what the IC is doing in the background, right? So... Yeah, that's true. But I, you know, the FCC, the the commission, the Communications Commission has a doctrine that says if it concerns national security or other executive branch priorities, we take our guidance from the executive Team branch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, well, and, and the FTC has nothing like that. Strategically, what was really going on? So uh, I, uh, this 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 is just a hobby horse I've been riding for at least half a decade now. That uh, uh, Congress ought to step in and give the national security agencies or Team Telecom an ability to guide the FTC in what they investigate, who they investigate, how hard they respond to violations, etc., um, and maybe an ability to ride uh, a, a side a sidecar uh, in the investigation and ask questions. Uh, uh, it's crazy that we are defaulting to uh, consumer protection laws in this area. Okay, um, TikTok's making an effort to break free of the China curse. Uh, Megan, how, how well do you think they're doing at that? Well, they appear to be taking cues from some of the uh, tech giants that we're, we're mostly familiar with on some of these public policy positions. So uh, listeners may know that uh, Hong Kong is now following policy of China and particularly the policy around um, essentially creating digital sovereignty, so to speak. And so a number of of U.S. Internet companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Google, Twitter, Zoom, um, have said that they're going to stop processing uh, requests for user data from the Hong Kong authorities as they, quote, study the new law that's gone into place in Hong Kong. And so I guess the, the new kid, so to speak, at the table, TikTok, although it's, it's been around for a few years, um, is, is taking potentially taking cues from these tech giants, but also similarly and also similarly saying we're, we're going to pause um, and essentially withdraw from from Hong Kong. Whether they succeed, and I think it's, as I said, I think most folks know there's this perception, uh, particularly because TikTok is uh, owned uh, by a Chinese company called ByteDance, um, where they run a separate service in China. Uh, the, the appearance of, of connection um, is, is quite strong. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Uh, I, and I, I, I 
don't see how they're going to shake that perception. Uh, it, it, it's almost impossible for them. Uh, they they are you know creating new management. Uh, uh, um, uh, reporting arrangements and the like, uh, uh, and uh, you know they're making what looks like a uh, a real effort, and I'm sure that the, the people who are trying this are are doing it in good faith. But I just don't see it working. Um, uh, they they say we store the data in the United States. Our content moderation policy is made in the United States, which will. Pro- please half the country and the other half will say, you're going to let Silicon Valley decide your content moderation? Well, you guys are just as bad as Facebook. Uh, so uh, I, I don't see them turning themselves into a U.S. company, even if they sold themselves to a U.S. company, I think they'd have trouble because uh, all their code probably comes from uh, uh, China. Um, uh, this, they're just stuck, I think, with that label. All right. Um, so decoupling, the short answer, decoupling uh, on the uh, uh, on the menu and likely to be served for a long time to come. Uh, Supreme Court uh, did one of the most popular things it's ever done, although it's not getting as much credit <laughs> as it should. It said, yeah, there's a law against robocalls and we're going to apply it to the United States government. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that there's a law saying that uh, government debt collectors can, can use robocalls, we're going to uh, say they can't. Uh, how, how did they get to that point, essentially overriding U.S. law? Yeah, so this is a pretty simple case, um, and as you say, very popular, but I think it's kind of a sleeper because of what it tells us maybe about how hard it is to regulate speech Uh, whether by government or perhaps by other uh, large commercial entities. So here's the basics on it. In 1991, Congress passed a law banning robocalls. And 14 years later, it passed an exception to that ban for robocalls to collect government-backed or government-related debt, like student loan debt, for example. Um, And the court concluded that the exception for government-related debt robocalls was improper. And so it left in place the original total ban with no exceptions. Um, That's fairly straightforward. um, But the way the court got there and the fracturing of the nine justices here tells us, I think, that this is pretty hard stuff uh, analytically. So the way it lines up is that four justices out of the nine said the law was content-based because it had this exception and therefore invalid under strict scrutiny. But one more justice said it was invalid under strict scrutiny, although he says it's for different reasons. The differences are subtle. Um, Four of them said it regulated commercial speech, so it was subject to intermediate scrutiny, not strict scrutiny. And of those four, three said the ban uh, and the exception was okay. One of them said it was not okay. That means a total of six justices thought that the law was an improper ban on speech because of the exception three said it was fine. Um, And as to the appropriate remedy given that situation, there's also a pretty nasty split of the original four who say the law is invalid. Three said, remove the exception and keep the ban. One more said, okay, keep the ban, although for different reasons. And the three who would have upheld the exception for government debt calls also said to keep the ban. So a total of seven to keep the general ban and two would have struck down the entire law, including the ban. 
Um, so it's doctrinally a bit of a mess, even in a case in which the outcome is almost universally praised by every right-thinking American. Uh, 99% plus probably <laughs> would poll in favor of this. And then the kicker, of course, is that at the end of the day, despite this 99 plus percent assumed support, we still have millions and billions of robocalls going forward every year all the time. So I just think it's a nice little microcosm of how really hard it can be, even among nine super educated experts, to figure out how, why, and, and whether and when to regulate speech and then to actually make the regulation be effective. Yeah, and it's interesting, the, the TCPA, which is uh, the law that bans robocalls, has gotten an incredible workout in uh, private yeah. lawsuits by the uh, the plaintiff's bar. Um, and that doesn't seem to be having much impact, uh, probably because they, they pick uh, nice, big, static, targets uh, who have a lot of money and who probably aren't responsible for the worst abuses. You're absolutely right about that. And it just, again, I just keep coming back to like, wow, what a tangled cluster of a mess here. Have you followed this closely enough to know what this tells us about the direction of the court in terms of First Amendment protection for corporate speech? Is this a, um, a consolidation of the views of uh, uh, on the right that you can't tell the difference between corporate commercial speech and ordinary uh, uh, Hyde Park corner speech? Yeah, so I'm not, I haven't followed this super closely, but I can tell you from my research in advance of today's call that um, the Academy is up on its hind legs uh, having fun with this and uh, blogging and tweeting and, and uh, opining about it. It is interesting along those lines because the the three justices, um, you know, uh, who would have upheld this ban, that's Breyer, uh, Ginsburg, and Elena Kagan, are worried, and Breyer writes the opinion, and are worried about whether it starts us down a slippery slope to broader regulation of commercial rules, you know, by various agencies, including the FDA and others, so like drug advertising and the like. So they have a concern, whether it's well-founded, whether the slope will be as slippery as they say. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh writing for the sort of the main opinion says, don't worry, we won't slide all the way down. You know, it's under control. We can draw lines and make distinctions. But clearly, at least some of the justices on the lib side are concerned about that and and you know we'll have to see how it plays out. I think it is easier for the court to get to the result it got to here albeit through a very fractured set of uh, opinions going all over the place um, in the context of robocalls um, you know which everybody hates if if people start uh, you know doing different kinds of uh, approaches in other areas where um, the regulation might not be as popular you know, it, it might produce different stresses and tensions. So we'll just have to see. But but definitely you're right that at least three of the justices were very concerned about that slippery slope and many law professors are uh, producing many words about it. Yeah, I tend to be a pretty conservative as listeners know, but uh, I've always been a little worried about uh, the enthusiasm for applying the First Amendment uh, to corporate commercial speech. Um, and I, I'm, I'm becoming more convinced that that's a bad idea because what it is producing is 
ever wackier decisions about, no, no, the government can't do that. The government can't do that. Uh, um, and yet uh, we're living in a world where uh, it's never been harder to actually speak your mind in a, an effective way because uh, uh, of the alleged First Amendment rights of uh, uh, these giant corporations who uh, tell us what we can and can't say. So Stuart, it's, uh, are you feeling uh, muzzled? Are you feeling muzzled, I Stuart? do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you got to be the only yes. one who thinks you're being muzzled. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. I I, I know it, it it gives you nightmares to think what I'd be <laughs> like if I were unbound. Right. Fully free. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, Florida has passed a privacy bill, which I suspect is going to become uh, more common uh, because anything that is described as a privacy bill now gets introduced in 20 other states after it passes one. Um, uh, Nate, this is a, this is a bill to restrict the use of DNA tests uh, in insurance. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, what's it basically do? So federal law already prohibits health insurers from using genetic information in underwriting policies and setting premiums, uh, but that uh, prohibition is, is limited to health insurance. Florida's law, which was recently signed by Governor DeSantis, would go a bit further and prohibit life, disability, and long-term care insurers from doing that same thing, basically using genetic information to determine coverage, availability of coverage, and make pricing decisions. And the fear here is that they're going to um, essentially look at these this DNA, identify potential risk categories, and, um, and discriminate against individuals by preventing them from getting insurance or making them pay a great deal of money for um, what they view as riskier policies. Um, you know, I think I think you're right that this is this is an area that's ripe for replication um, in other states as well as at the federal level. One of the interesting things to me is that whether it's this use of this type of DNA information or access to it when you're when you're giving it to to um, websites uh, to determine your ancestry or for other purposes like that. Or when you look at other types of, of emerging technology like AI and facial recognition, the focus uh, uh, in trying to identify and prevent your, your worst nightmares from, from coming to fruition has been almost entirely on public institutions up to this point. And um, people have largely ignored private entities um, who have been able to fly under the radar, even though in some cases the potential impacts on people could be equally or more consequential in some cases. And so one of the interesting things to, to see here is if this goes beyond merely insurance um, and starts to creep into other areas uh, of private use of, of personal information. Yeah, I, I, this, this stuff always bothers me because basically insurance is a bet about how long you're going to live, whether you're going to get uh, need long-term care. And um, at the end of the day, uh, some people are going to live longer. And if you can tell who's going to live longer, uh, you're going to differentially price, uh, which means I think that if new information comes into the market, 
some people are winners and some people are losers. And what this Absolutely. law says is uh, we don't want any winners and we don't want any losers, uh, which, uh, you know, for half of the people is bad news. Uh, and yet uh, everybody's treating this as though it's really good news. Well, insurance is ultimately about pooling risk, right? So that it can be affordable for everybody who has it and they can get coverage without being discriminated against. And if you allow these insurance companies to get unique insights into information and start differentiating, then, then you know, for, I think... A lot of people. But how is this? How is this different from saying, you know, we have one rate for smokers and another rate for non-smokers? Uh, uh, in the interest of smoking privacy, shouldn't uh, we pass a law that says you can't ask that question? That's shocking that you would uh, use that information to discriminate against us. Uh, I, it's it's the same basic uh, problem. It's additional information that tells you something quite relevant about their life uh, expectancy. Well, I think we've made, as a country, a lot of, of judgments about smoking and discriminating against <laughs> smokers in a lot of ways. I think we've gone well past that. But, uh, yeah. uh, but no, I think, you know, at some point, if you carry this out to its logical conclusion, it, it starts to beg the question why you even need insurance companies, because people who have limited to no risk are going to say, why am I even getting this if I know I'm not at risk for, you know, certain catastrophic... Oh, well, we're all at risk of dying unexpectedly and surprisingly, and COVID-19 reminds us of that. Uh, uh, and so uh, it, it sure, turns it, it cheap, from- Sure, but the kind of insurance you would, you would seek out. Yeah, then. it gives you cheaper insurance. That's right. Uh, uh, so you're giving purely um, risk-based insurance and not some sort of, uh, uh, why don't we spread this risk around among people who have different uh, risks, but we're going to pretend they don't. I, I think that was that's more of a health insurance argument than any other. Uh, uh, and the health insurance argument has kind of fallen apart since uh, uh, the law uh, in Obamacare that said you can't use uh, pre-existing conditions to change people's rates. So I, I'm not sure. I, I, I suspect that the, the actual rationale for preventing insurance companies from using this data is a lot weaker than it used to be before the uh, uh, no pre-existing condition rules went into effect. Uh, but it's Assuming uh, no stick around. What, they hold up on under. We, there's no, assault. there's no guarantee of that. Uh, <laughs> um, although I think, I, I think I know which way you're betting on the, the November election. So. <laughs> I don't think it's going away. All right. Um, so, Nate, let me ask you about something yeah. completely different, which is uh, there's a lot of talk about uh, the Cloud Act and the U.S.-U.K. bilateral data access agreement uh, uh, going into effect, which is essentially the first Cloud Act agreement. Uh, it's supposed to happen next month, although I can't see it. I can't find any actual confirmation so the the news story seemed to be more rumor than something that you can you know uh, uh guarantee um yeah. uh, what actually is this agreement going to do yeah so this is an agreement that was signed by the us and uk in october of last year there was a, a cooling off period of 180 days after that agreement was transmitted to uh the relevant congressional committees which was basically designed to let them object if, if they wanted to. Um, Congress has not. And as a result of that, and, and following a bit of a snafu in the transmission, 
my understanding is it went into effect on July 8th, which was last week. Um, wow. The, the effective okay. notification took place on January 10th. Um, and that agreement basically establishes rules of the road for each of these two governments when they're demanding digital evidence from technology companies located in the territory of the other so-called cross-border data requests. And contrary to popular misconception, it doesn't actually provide governments with any authority, let alone any new authority to compel production of digital evidence. Um, it's been sort of compared to a, a visa waiver-like program uh, for the MLAT process. The MLAT process is a, a formal, uh, somewhat arcane process of going through diplomatic channels to get assistance with the production of evidence from another country. And this would basically say, if you have uh, sufficient uh, privacy and human rights protections under your domestic laws, and you actually abide by them, and we have this type of agreement in place, you can forego the MLAP process and go right to the technology providers. Um, and essentially what it's doing is allowing these governments to obtain evidence in criminal investigations much more quickly, provided they meet those standards. Now, from the perspective of, of the technology companies, the aims here were really twofold. The first was, as I suggested there, to, to sort of establish a, a strong set of, of privacy and human rights standards, a floor, so to speak, for legal demands that are issued to U.S. companies. And the extent to which the agreement has accomplished this isn't just an assessment uh, strictly of its terms. Um, basically, if you believe U.S. tech companies were going to be able to bob and weave and avoid foreign countries' compulsory jurisdiction, uh, then you might think this is a net negative and that it's going to result in production of data to some of these other countries, including the U.K. Um, but if you think that the world was on a path to where these countries were going to be, these companies, sorry, uh, were going to be forced to comply with these types of data requests from foreign governments, I think it's it's hard to argue that this is anything but a net positive for, for user privacy. Um, the second thing it was designed to address was really a race to the bottom on conflicting legal obligations. There has been um, in recent years, sort of a proliferation of two things. One is um, statutes in, in foreign countries that purport to require American companies to comply with these production demands, but also blocking statutes that prohibit them from producing data to any other government but theirs. And companies have been caught in the middle here. And I think the the ultimate success of this is going to to turn on whether this can can be replicated in key jurisdictions, and those blocking statutes, those barriers to compliance, can be taken down under these criteria. Um, Brexit, in the case of the UK, has made things a bit more difficult. Um, before Brexit, the UK um, demands would not have necessarily raised significant concerns under EU data protection laws or under GDPR. Um, Post-Brexit, that is um, not going to be the case. Um, but the U.S. is reportedly in talks with Australia already on replicating a similar agreement there. And last summer, European member states authorized the European Commission to begin negotiations with the U.S. on, on a so-called Cloud Act agreement, although they don't uh, specifically call it that in the, the directive. Um, but 
essentially, there there seems to be some movement afoot to try to to expand um, beyond just the UK and replicate this in other places. And the key is going to be how you bring that together and uh, you know sew it into a, a a quilt rather than just a patchwork of of different agreements. So so more to come. Why on do that. you why do you think, given the significance of this? Neither the UK nor the US wanted to make a, a big announcement about how it had gone into effect. Uh, they, they must be calculating, uh, you know, if I, if I were at the Justice Department, I'd say, if we announce this and make a big deal uh, and it ends up on Fox News, the president could tweet something telling us to stop. <laughs> I, I, but I, I don't know why the UK didn't say, hey, this is great. We've now got access to this data unless they think there's a political downside as well. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they do some see some potential risk in drawing a lot of attention to this. Um, I also think, you know, quite frankly, part of this is everybody is just consumed with with other things. I think, you know, in addition to COVID, um, you know, in the UK, a lot of the same people who have who have been working on and focusing on this um have also been wrapped up in Brexit negotiations and, and things of that nature. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if this just isn't their top priority at this point. Um, they did do a, a, you know, a bit more of a, a public splash with the, the signing last October between Barr and um, the Home Secretary, Preeti Patel. Uh, and so, you know, it, it just um, it's also a bit less of a newsworthy event. All right. Um, so I heard this speech and it was brutal. Uh, the, the FBI director, Ray, gave a speech about uh, Chinese espionage and theft of uh, uh, intellectual property that was as persuasive and relentless as anything I've heard from a government official on this topic. Uh, um, uh, I don't know, David, Megan, did you guys uh, uh, see the speech? I saw part of it I, and I read the uh, transcript uh, of it, which is on their website. And it really does, I think, reaffirm, in case anybody had any doubts, the absolute centrality of China as a foreign policy and national security threat for um, the government right now. And, and Ray really makes that clear that we're in a multi-front uh, ongoing struggle and competition and conflict involving economic issues, trade secrets, traditional espionage, academic influence, political influence, uh, cyber methodologies across all those fronts. Uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party and the government is just very, very heavily invested with strategic competition. And Ray, as you say, really hammers it. Uh, you know, he adds a note that this is not uh, directed at Chinese Americans, which I think is important in the current environment particularly. Um, but he is very, very tough on the PRC government. Um, and there's a lot of headline grabbing statistics in his speech, like they open a new CI case on China every 10 hours. Uh, they've got about 2,500 such cases going. That's about half the total. Uh, and then DOJ on its China task force website's got some other statistics like 80% uh, of uh, economic espionage prosecutions involve someone trying to benefit the PRC. Uh, and 60% of the trade secret cases they've got have a nexus to the PRC. So, 
it's a it's a big big push and a public explanation of that push. Um, it's almost as if you know the U.S. has a, a two plus three framework for its foreign intelligence uh, concerns: Russia, China, and then Iran, North Korea, and violent extremists are the other three. But as a practical matter, it's starting to sound a lot more like a one plus four with yes. China to talk, particularly given, you know, not to be too snarky, but particularly given the president's uh, affection for Vladimir Putin. I think it really is sort of a one plus four now. Um, you know, some Obama senior officials said that they were surprised when they arrived in 2009 how much time they had to spend on counterterrorism issues. I think Biden folks unless they're listening to this podcast, as they all should be, and assuming they win, when they come in, they may be similarly surprised at the amount of energy, time, resources, effort that's being devoted to uh, to the China threat in the national security establishment of the government. Um, and I wrote about a little bit on, on lawfare, like sort of hard issues that uh, a Biden team might face. This is a, a note of optimism in an otherwise dark time. Uh, and China's right up there at the top of the list. So I, I, I commend the, the Ray speech uh, and the DOJ statistics on uh, what they're doing against China. I think it's a good reading for anyone who really wants to be informed uh, about the nature of this challenge. Yeah, he was he was very careful. You're right about uh, 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 saying he was not uh, uh, pursuing Chinese Americans. He yep. spent a lot of time emphasizing uh, the Chinese Communist Party is the problem. Uh, it, it, almost as though he was saying, we don't have a beef with China, we have a beef with the Chinese Communist Party. Megan, anything to add to that? Actually, I thought, well, what's what's really new about this? And then I think I, I had to take a step back and remember that I've left Washington, D.C., and I'm not as close to the national security community as I once was. And so I think it's this has been you know at the forefront of minds for the national security community for a long time, as, as you and David have noted. But for kind of the average person, it probably hasn't been. And so I think, you know, the one of the first lines that jumped out at me with this speech is the quote of, if you are an American adult, it is more likely than not that China has stolen your personal data. Of course, we all know that most adults think that there's nothing they can do about that, and that's a whole separate set of issues. But I think, you know, among other things, it seemed to me that this was a speech to really try and get the message out. Uh, I know that they've been doing a lot of outreach for a number of years, including visiting the state that I'm in, which is South Carolina, and convening um, together with the counterintelligence executive and the U.S. attorney here, efforts to, to again, extend the, the concern around the theft of intellectual property and the like. But here, as, as you've noted, there's, they have touched on some other tactics that, that the Chinese are using, in particular, the, the Thousand Talents program, which I know we're going to talk about in a minute. But really, it seems to me to be um, an effort to give something to better educate not just uh, those who are inside the beltway, but really um, business leaders around the country, among others. Hey, Stuart. So there was, yep. This is Nate. I was just going to, if it's okay, offer up a couple of things that were in the news at the end of last week and over the weekend that relate a bit to this. Um, you know, as we've talked about this issue over the last several months, one of the, the drums I've been beating is that an approach that's purely unilateral and purely punitive um, in this competitive race with China on technology isn't going to be very successful. Um, in recent months, we've seen uh, the administration sort of organically build up some multilateral support for confronting China in, in this space. 
And uh, over the weekend, Politico reported that Trump's national security advisor is going to Europe this week to discuss a handful of these issues with folks there. And um, I think that's good news to see them try to to build some bridges with with key allies in in confronting China here. Um, the second story was, uh, I believe, it was on Friday in a Politico story. Uh, about efforts to to essentially develop uh, in the 5G context uh, a cloud-based essentially competitor to Huawei. There are some challenges uh, apparently with that. I'm not an expert in the technology here, but uh, reportedly they specifically rate, relate to the chips that are currently available on the market. But Congress is throwing some money behind that, and um, it's essentially it's it, bottom line is in my view it's good to see um, Congress and others pushing for a more proactive, positive approach to competing with China in in key aspects of technology. Yeah, I I think that this is going to uh, you know it's. Uh, it's NSC speak to say we need a whole of government approach to this, uh, but that probably is the case. Uh, we've got a lot of uh, uh, tools and we haven't yet got a strategy for using them, uh, but um, uh, gradually one is emerging. Uh, and I agree with you that uh, international cooperation on this stuff is is essential. And uh, it's a clue to how essential it is that the Trump administration is embracing it. Now, there's actually a Bill Barr speech on the 5G issue that is actually is worth reading. Um, it may reflect some level of disagreement within the administration, but uh, but Barr comes out pretty strong in favor of trying to find a way to support U.S. industry in the space, um, which, you know, you might not have naturally thought that would come from him. But there it is, very stark. So meanwhile, uh, uh, to, to get back to what justice does for a living, which is indict people, they indicted a professor for uh, um, a not telling the truth about uh, uh, his support from uh, uh, China. What's interesting in this one is usually they get in trouble for taking money from China and uh, not talking about it. In this case, it looks like the professor actually took the took money from the U.S. government and was actually doing research for China. Uh, uh, Megan, uh, is is that the essential story here? Yes, I think so. So he was, um, there was a criminal complaint that was unsealed and charges again of, of grant fraud for not disclosing that he was engaged in this scheme uh, to the tune of $4 million of grants from the NIH and then also making false statements, which some of us are more familiar with uh, in the news over the past few years. As the, the, the OPA, the Office of Public Affairs statement uh, reads, um, the gentleman was leaving to try and leave the United States um, when he was arrested with carrying three large bags, one small suitcase and a briefcase containing laptops, three cellular phones, USB drives, several silver bars, um, expired Chinese passports for his family and the proper, uh, and deeds for his property in China. So uh, certainly it would appear as though he was trying to make an escape um, as the, the the report goes on, and I mentioned a few minutes ago, when we were talking about the race speech, this idea of the Thousand Talents Plan, where um, the Chinese not only through exfiltration of sensitive data, but also through uh, recruiting either either sending uh, folks overseas, as this professor was, or in some cases um, working to to recruit folks to China to um, invest in China, and essentially once they're there, steal the intellectual property of of the inventors. 
What's also surprising to me is that, so this case was in the Southern District of Ohio. The U.S. attorney says that this is the third case involving the Ill- illegal transfer of intellectual property and research to China. So we're talking about the lower half of Ohio and three cases alone in that one state, uh, which I think, you know, again, goes to to some of the statistics that we've talked about. The crime, you know, the, the punishment here is uh, 10 years in prison and um, for the false, for the um, fraud, and then five years for the false statements. But it's Certainly, as we've talked about, further evidence of of, of the the scope of which um, the the activities that the CCP is undertaking in order to, as as the race speech talks about, really extend its its dominance beyond just uh, the U.S. in tech. It's really the U.S. in everything. Okay, well, um, let's let's move through a few more uh, uh, stories quickly. Uh, um, Yahoo engineer who. Um, uh, was basically hacking Yahoo users and and a few others. Uh, um, uh, Six thousand users trying to find their sex tapes uh, so that he could download them and watch them. Uh, yeah. He got he got a, a remarkably light sentence, didn't he, David? He did. He got probation. Um, what's I think you know interesting about the case is sort of. Uh, that it precedes the grant of certiorari in the Van Buren case. Um, so this guy pled to a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for cracking user passwords for Yahoo users and then using Yahoo's internal systems to get access to their email accounts from which he then was able to try to reset passwords for various other accounts like iCloud or whatever. Um, and take those things. And yes, he was doing this all in search of, I guess, like amateur, you know, sex tapes or whatever of these people. Um, so he took a plea to the uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and he got five years of probation for it. Um, I, I have put- to say, I, it, it, they said he's going to be able to leave home for work, religious activities, medical appointments, and court-related obligations. I'd take that deal right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stuart, if you have anything to confess. Um, this is the time. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, he, he also damaged when when he figured that the jig was up because one of his supervisors, I think, was, was onto him. He actually destroyed or partially destroyed his home computer onto which he had downloaded much of this content, which made it difficult to uh, to notify the victims. Um, so, I mean, you know, query he whether got credit, he, he got credit for cooperation. That's why he got such a lenient sentence. He, well, he cooperated. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite understanding this. There's something odd about this, uh, this there's, sentence. There's something odd about it. I, I wonder whether he will, depending on how Van Buren comes out, you know, try to challenge it. I, I looked for the statement of facts underlying his guilty plea to see if there was any more detail beyond what's in the, uh, sort of DOJ press release, and I have to confess uh, I couldn't find it. So I don't know what means he used to get access to this, but, you know, Van Buren involves another insider. In that case, it's a policeman uh, who uses a special database, a government database, to pursue personal interests. And and you could say that this guy's doing something similar. Whether his hacking techniques involve violating technical limits as opposed to sort of policy-based limits uh, on access was not entirely clear to me. Um, but I will say that no matter what Van Buren, however, however it comes out, he might um, he might have an incentive to let this guilty plea stay uh, and not try to challenge it um, because he got such a what appears to be such a sweet deal. Yeah, I, I agree with you. All right, two more quick uh, uh, stories. Reddit 
um, which used to be the last of the holdouts for not engaging in aggressive content moderation, has changed its tune and is showing the fanaticism of a convert. Uh, uh, last time I, I quoted from some of their uh most egregious uh, uh, standards, uh, uh, which they swallowed in about 48 hours. Here's another one. Uh, uh, the Justice Served Reddit uh, um, announced uh, that due to the new Reddit updates to its policies and administrator conversations with users, we can no longer allow any posts, comments, or other content that shows a person of color as the aggressor. This is considered hate speech and or harassment toward an important minority group and is no longer allowed, um, it, which frankly is exactly what uh, our politically correct censors uh, want to achieve. But I don't think they wanted it said. Um, and in fact, I, I gather that that, that announcement was taken down. But this is, this, is, this is where these policies are taking us. It's, uh, uh, they really want to control what people can see in service of a narrative that they're, uh, um, that's predetermined. Uh, that's my view. So I, uh, and we'll get to talk about that. I know, Nate, you want to uh, jump in on that, but I'm going to ask you instead to talk about the debacle in contact tracing. I will hold my uh, comments on, on conservative <laughs> bias in advance until uh, next time. <laughs> Yeah, so the contrast, the contact tracing uh, developments are unfortunately not terribly surprising. Um, you know, there has been a lot of concern uh, since the outset of, of COVID that um, there would be some some significant risks to privacy and security um, through technological applications that do contact tracing. The the political article, the first sentence of it, really to me says it all, which is. Quote, the push to use smartphone apps to track the spread of coronavirus is creating a potential jackpot for hackers worldwide, and the U.S. offers a fat, loosely defended target. Um, and I will preface this by saying I'm not directing this solely at, at the Trump administration, but I think one of the core problems we have um, here in the U.S., um, on contact tracing is that there's been zero leadership at the federal level on what role these kinds of applications should play in contact tracing. Um, can or I, how can to I jump in on build? this? I, I think yeah. that whole sentence is BS. I, you know, <laughs> the, the, uh, there is nothing in any of these contact tracing apps that isn't in a hundred advertising apps and in Google's uh, uh, location services. Uh, sure. I, 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 and if that's a bonanza for hackers, the hackers are already rolling in their bonanza. This is this is just that. Uh, for some reason, uh, and I, I, I suspect it's Google and Apple, focused on a whole bunch of theoretical privacy risks in contact tracing as they were trying to figure out how to uh, develop these apps. Uh, they overcorrected for it. Uh, they didn't solve the problem because nobody trusts them anyway on privacy. Uh, uh, and so this whole thing is is kind of melting down in a welter of theoretical privacy problems that pale in uh, comparison to the uh, crisis that we face in public health. Uh, uh, and yet people are spending more time worrying about that than about whether they're, you know, going to survive the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some some differences, um, both in the, the types of data that are being collected by some of these apps, as well as 
in the capability of the developers to secure the information they're collecting. Um, but I agree with you that this, you know, basically, if you look at who's done a good job in limiting the spread of COVID, um, I, virtually all of the countries that have succeeded have had contact tracing, a robust contact tracing program, um, play an important role in that effort. And we still don't have, as far as I can tell, anything um, manual or technical that is helping us confront this challenge. And I think, you know, you can have a debate about whether or not uh, the security and privacy risks are worth it, um, but we're not even having that debate because we don't have a federal policy on what we should do about contact tracing. There's nothing. And so yeah. no, I, think, know, I think that's right. And, this conversation. There are a bunch of states that are doing this. I thought California was doing something, uh, yeah. uh, uh, but it. it uh, um, I don't think they're resourced or, or capable yeah. of of doing this kind of thing well. I, I agree. Uh, and part of it is there's just going to be an enormous amount of customer resistance to this uh, for the same reason that uh, Americans aren't wearing masks. They aren't going to want to uh, uh, allow contact tracing. Uh, and the countries that have uh, uh, a greater tradition of uh, compliance uh, are going to come out of this looking a whole lot better because, uh, among other things, they started wearing masks when they first heard that there was a coronavirus in town. And you can't overcome that without without political leadership. You, you, it still may be difficult, but without some, some leadership um, – from our politicians, you're just not going to overcome that reluctance. Yeah. And 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 I don't. Th I, I think you could have leadership, and the leadership would end up uh, 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 breaking its pick on uh, the stubborn uh, uh, American uh, determination that they can do what they want when they want, and it's none of your damn business. Uh, Trump, but Trump wore a mask, so we'll see. Well, we'll see, <laughs> we'll see if he can change things. Yeah. Okay. I. Uh, Thanks to all of you. Uh, let's turn to our interview now with Bruce Schneier. Bruce is uh, an internationally recognized security technologist, lecturer, author. The, his most recent book, which uh, we talked about uh, on this uh, podcast, was uh, uh, "Click Here to, to Kill Everybody." Uh, and uh, uh, but he's not here to talk about that. Instead, uh, uh, he recently was a co-author on a report by the Atlantic Council about. Internet of Things, security, and a very practical suggestion for how to address Internet of Things security. Uh, and I thought uh, it'd be fun just to, to dig into that policy prescription. Uh, so um, uh, let, me, let me start by asking you, Bruce, uh, how come you wanted to write something on IoT security? So this is the benefit of uh, teaching at the Harvard Kennedy School, is that students come to you with interesting ideas or concepts of ideas, and we talk about them. And this was a student, Nate Kim, and we decided to write about IoT security, specifically how to deal with the international nature of it. And the way these projects work is you need a sponsor, you need an actual client. And uh, Trey Hare at the Atlantic Council had this question, and uh, mostly Nate did the policy research. The, he wrote up the student paper for the class, uh -huh. and then... Uh, Trey, Nate, and myself rewrote it as an Atlantic Council report. So that's how it came to be. And it's, I mean, it's great having students who want to do stuff like that. 
Yeah, no, it's it, it it is good, and especially if you can give them a little bit of guidance and and, and say, yeah, go in that direction, not in that direction, because uh, uh, you you've already been to uh, down one road and you know that it isn't going to lead to any place useful. And you want something that is within the scope of what a student can do in a year, right? Not too big, not too small. Actually, finding a a suitable project is an art form. But yes, so. Uh, Internet of Things security. It's a disaster, right? It's a disaster. And and sort of understanding why it's a disaster, I think, is important. It's primarily a disaster because these are new industries. They're not computers. They're not phones. They're not big, expensive things like cars. The economics is different. The price point is different. The experience is different. You just don't get the same level of security you get in, in our computers. And the market doesn't solve it. This is not something that the market can solve because the economic rewards aren't there. So it's a disaster. It's a disaster that's growing. And uh, it's increasingly a national security disaster because all these things are interconnected. So solving this is is important. So I, I, I agree with all of that. This, uh, uh, there is uh, uh, much of IoT security uh, is insecure because... 25 cents more was a cost that the uh, manufacturer was not willing to pay. Uh, and the software that uh, was 25 cents less was uh, free, uh, it, uh, was insecure, but it didn't matter. Uh, it, it was free. And that's right. You know, it, it's actually, it, it's it's sort of more interesting than that. I, mean, I, I could uh, name sort of a few real reasons. Uh, I mean, the first I think is, is patching. I mean, if you think about how we get security, we don't know how to design things securely out of the box, so we patch. We're agile. And our phones and computers, every month, every couple of weeks, get new security patches. You don't have that same ecosystem in the IoT. Right? These devices are uh, low cost, as you mentioned, designed offshore by third parties. Engineering teams come together uh, and then disperse. There isn't someone on staff to write the patches. Yeah. And even worse, a lot of these devices aren't patchable. And the way you patch your home router is you throw it away and buy a new one, right? That's the mechanism. <laughs> yeah. So just the fact that the economics is different means you're not going to have the same patching system. What we talk about in the paper inherently is the international nature of the supply chain. That you're going to have this sure. company in China, in Taiwan, in Malaysia that'll make the interconnected toy or small appliance or road thing. And It'll just be out there. And, and we don't have the same regulatory reach into those countries. And it, it's just done differently. And that so makes it got, also a lot harder. You've got, a, you've got a proposal here, which is basically to shove the security upstream. Uh, to, uh, uh, a, and uh, you, you draw on a couple of regulatory regimes that are already getting into the IoT security business, uh, the FDA and uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, um, are, do you see them as models for pushing this stuff upstream, or do you think we need to invent a new one? You know, I'm not sure they're good models. I mean, those are going to be expensive stuff, cars, medical devices. Now, because those are expensive, they're not going to have the same economic limitations you're going to have on a toy you bought your right. kid for Christmas one year, and a year later, the company's out of business. It's going to be different. So I think we need to look at that as, as a model. We need to look at other models. We need to look at, at cheap consumer goods. I mean, how is it that 
in the United States, the regulation that you can't sell children's pajamas that catch on fire is enforced. It's not forced on the, uh, the manufacturers, the offshore manufacturers. It's forced on Target and Sears and Amazon and the companies that sell them to American consumers. Now, how are safety regulations on baby food or pharmaceuticals enforced? Now, when you look at these different, I mean, in this often very long, complex international supply chains, the regulations are enforced on whoever sells the device to the consumer. I, I agree with that. That just privatizes the regulatory problem because they can't just take it on faith. Uh, if we could take it on faith, we'd be taking it on faith. The government would take it on faith. But uh, Amazon can't assume that everybody who wants to sell on their platform is uh, uh, doing this right and has has uh, upgradeability features and uh, patch features and a staff of people who can patch the IoT they're selling. They have to then go out and develop their own tools for ensuring compliance with whatever um, cybersecurity standards uh, we're imposing on them, right? So that's right. I mean, in the United States, we tend to like to privatize public problems. I mean, we hate mm -hmm. solving public problems with uh, public resources. That's that sort of weirdly un-American. So yes, uh, in this case, it would work. I mean, I would like to have some kind of international governance regime we don't have that. So the question is, what can we do in the near term? And yep. forcing Comcast to ensure that home routers meet whatever security standards, ensuring that uh, Best Buy knows that whatever uh, home drones are sold or Target whatever toys. It's Someone has to do this, right? And in, in the end, we're going to pay for this in higher prices because more security costs more. Mm -hmm. And in compliance. So the consumer will pay somehow. They could pay it through their tax dollars. That, that feels fair. Uh, they could pay it through increased cost in the stuff they buy because their sellers have to raise their cost because you're right. They have to build some sort of compliance regime. But it does work in other industries. I mean, the, the fact that uh, when you buy a toy for toddlers, there aren't any parts a toddler can swallow. The compliance for that is on whoever sells that toy to the parent. And that's the way we do it. And and not just in, you know, I, 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 as you're pointing out, this is a products liability doctrine, essentially. And uh, um, the courts have increasingly been saying um, when Amazon sells you a product, when you go to Amazon, you buy a product. I think there was a case recently that we covered here where somebody bought a retractable leech, leash and it retracted too fast and injured her eye and she was suing over the injury and she sued Amazon. Amazon said, we didn't make it. We, we're not the third party seller. You, you know, we, we just created the platform and the court said, yeah, creating the platform, providing the, uh, um, uh, delivery, uh, uh, doing the advertising we think you're in the best position to police this uh, and you had a lot to do with the sale. So we're just going to say you're liable. Uh, and uh, if you don't like that, you need to police your, uh, your suppliers. And that's a little different because that I think was Amazon marketplace. That, that yes. probably wasn't as Amazon selling it. Amazon does sort of have this like eBay like function where third parties are on their platform. But I mean, what the courts are doing there is kind of what we're doing. Who's in the best position to solve this problem? Right? It, it needs to be solved. It's going to cost money. Eventually, that cost trickles out to the consumer. But who can we put pressure on? And what we're saying in the paper is 
that whoever sells it to the consumer is in the best position, and then they will push that requirement upstream. So from, I'm going to make this up, Amazon, it'll go to whoever's in their marketplace. From there, it'll go to whoever distributes it. From there, it'll go to whoever manufactures it. And then eventually, the factory somewhere in Latin America or Southeast Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa, wherever it is, that is making the thing in order to sell it to the consumer in Amazon Marketplace has to meet whatever standards. They, the pajamas can't catch on fire. The baby food has to actually be nutritious. And the Internet of Things toy can't have a default password. I, mean, I just made all that stuff up. Now, there's a whole other issue of what's the standard? And in a sense, we allied that, right? Someone's going to have to come up with a standard, whether it's the Federal Trade Commission or, you know, you mentioned uh, the NTSB for, uh, for cars, uh, whoever it is for medical devices, right? I mean, there will be, needs to be some kind of standard developed that we can point to and say they have to meet that. And I think that's another issue. But this to us is the most efficient right now and doable mechanism for enforcement. So I, I, I agree with you that uh, the uh, uh, the standards are a big part of this. Uh, and we've actually seen, uh, as is the way, from having no standards, we now have an embarrassment of riches. There must be 20 different standards for uh, IoT security uh, that probably overlap, you know, 80% of the time. Uh, I, uh, but there's enough difference that you you have to pick one, and it's not at all clear uh, uh, which standard ought to be adopted. Um, a, and then it's not clear to me uh, that the standard we adopt is going to be a good standard five years from now. Uh, do you um, pick a standard and then insist that it evolve uh, and who evolves it uh, and uh, uh, how do you make sure that people continue to follow the evolution as it does? I think we know that about all standards is that they evolve, especially as technology changes so fast. And here again, look at the FTA, look at the FTC, the uh, uh, NHTSA, that they tend to be flexible. They tend to, uh, you know, I mean, we can have rigid, no default passwords. That's kind of obvious. Uh, but we can have things like flexible and you can't uh, succumb to any uh, current attacks. I, I just, that's, that's lousy. I just made that up. Right. And, and I think you need a combination of them. But right, you do need somebody, national or international, that will establish the standard and then revisit them. Uh, the F FTC has this kind of system where they set a bunch of goals, look how the industry is doing, go after the worst players. By doing that, everyone gets a little bit higher, and then they repeat that, and then the industry slowly moves up in whatever uh, area they are focusing on. The worry about Internet of Things is there are national security implications. That yeah. is not the same as like regular product safety. It, it, it does have implications outside of you and your home and the thing you bought. So there might be a point where we have to step in as a country and say, Right, these insecure home routers could affect the power grid, could affect our elections, could affect big things. And there you're going to have to have someone to enforce standards that are, you know, maybe higher than even the consumer wants, but are necessary for the nation. And that is a whole other discussion that that 
I don't think we're really ready to have right now. Yeah, and that's this is why I'm I'm unenthusiastic about the FTC. They have a way of doing things, and as you say, it's very incremental and common lawish, and uh, uh, depends on catching somebody who's basically at their mercy, and then telling them here are the standards you're going to observe. You'll sign up to that in exchange for which we won't shoot you in the head, and and people say yes, I'll take that deal, uh, and um, uh, then they publish it and say, well, everybody else should get the hint. Uh, but by the time they've been through that process, it's uh, two years down the road. Uh, and then if they want others to sign on to that, nobody's bound to sign on to it. So uh, it could take years just to get people herded into the place that made sense um, today. Uh, and by the time you got everybody herded there, there will be new problems. I, I remember vividly the FTC for a while was saying, well, the standard is you have to change your password every six months. And then they realized that actually making people change their passwords every six months meant that they chose passwords that any idiot could remember. Uh, and so um, they have stopped saying that. But for a long time, they were kind of pushing people down the wrong road. Uh, and that's a institutional problem. I, I would like to see somebody who actually cares about national security and knows about national security and has a little bit more flexibility setting those standards than the FTC. So I, I'm game. And it's not a leading question. Who do you got? I mean, I, mean, I, I agree with you. But who so do you I, have I, who has the authority to do it closest, in the U.S.? Closest uh, agency is probably DHS's uh, Cybersecurity Administration. Uh, uh, they have actually released some standards uh, uh, on IoT security. Uh, they do have some ability to influence regulatory agencies, some executive order authority over uh, regulatory agencies uh, and the cybersecurity standards that they uh, use. So that my guess is um, with only a little bit of uh, uh, tugging and poking, you could probably take the CISA authority uh, and uh, marry it up with FTC's authority and, and have a workable regulatory regime. I mean, that sounds right. I mean, so you'd have DHS produce standards because they are national security, and then yep. FTC would might be in charge of enforcing them somehow. I mean, this sounds good. Yeah. Because in a sense, yeah, I, some of these regulations, some of these security standards are greater than cars and medical devices and consumer goods. So they're going to transcend those industry-specific regulatory bodies. That makes sense. I, I like it. I, mean, I, 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 of course, worry about I mean, the devils in the details and the lobbying, because what I want is standards that the industry won't like. Right. I, I mean, yeah. it's got to be something that they don't want. Otherwise, it's not any good. So we have to get over that. We can. I, you know, you, you're looking for standards that 15 or 20 percent of the industry says, yeah, that's about right. And everybody else says, oh, that's too hard. Exactly. Yes. Right. Just barely doable. And it's going to raise the cost of goods. We can't get around that. We like cheap stuff. We love cheap stuff. But security costs is going to cost in software. It's going to cost in hardware. It'll cost in, you know, having a team of engineers to patch the toaster. Or at least yeah. a system to uh, take them offline when the company goes out of business and we deal with orphan devices. This is going to cost money, and we tend not like to, tend to not like to spend it, especially before disaster strikes. After yeah. we can be convinced, 
But before, <laughs> we hate that. So last question. Um, international uh, uh, cooperation in this. Uh, uh, how much cooperation do we need internationally and how much can we expect to get? You know, again, look at other industries, you know, the flammable pajamas and pharmaceuticals and, and child safe toys. There's some harmony. There are differences. I think the more harmony we have, the better. If the you know right thinking countries get together and come up with standards, then it's easier for manufacturers to meet. I think in software, it's kind of interesting because software is right one cell everywhere. You just need standards in one large enough market. I mean, right now, California has the best standards in the U.S. Uh, no right. default passwords and a couple of other things. And that will affect the IoT stuff you and I buy, even though we're not California residents, because nobody's going to write two pieces of software, one for California, one for everybody else. Yeah, the California law, if I remember, actually leaves a lot of room for California authorities to say – uh, we're actually coming up with a standard. And, right. and they haven't they, yet. So it's still yes. very much in the works. Yeah. Last time I talked to the Secretary of State, kind of had no idea what he was going to be doing. So hopefully that'll, that'll, that'll change. But any software changes will affect the entire world. All right. Okay. So Chris Krebs, uh, uh, if, if you want to get there first, you're racing the California Secretary of State. You better, better get a move on. <laughs> All right, uh, uh, Bruce Schneier, thank you very much. This was I, uh, I, I think I characterized this as a sort of bite-sized policy uh, uh, a paper, but one on uh, an issue that's that there's nothing more important in cybersecurity today. So uh, thank you for the clarity of your contribution and for getting uh, Nate Kim and Trey Hare to, uh, to join you in the paper. It's called Enforcing Security on the Global IoT Supply Chain, the Reverse Cascade, and it's an Atlantic Council publication. You can find it on the web. Uh, uh, great to talk to you, Bruce. Thanks for helping me publicize it. All right. Uh, and thanks to Megan Stiffel, David Chris, and Nate Jones for joining me on the News Roundup. This has been episode 324 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget to send questions, uh, comments, and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, or if you uh, want me to cover a particular story, send me uh, uh, a Twitter or a LinkedIn uh, uh, note. Uh, I'm at Stuart Baker and I'm uh, Stuart Baker on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, and uh, if I do what you ask, be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play or Pocket Cast or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and then uh, next week, uh, as we're coming down to uh, hiatus, we'll be gone in August. Uh, uh, but next week, uh, you can join us as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>